make redundancy plans you have to have redundancy don't put all your eggs in one basket a lot of people say oh take the leap take the risk but you have to make sure your house is in order from caribbean ideas synapse in trinidad and tobago this is uptick a podcast that's part of the snapshot podcast network uptick is a show that brings you the stories of the caribbean entrepreneurs and innovators who are building the next generation of great companies These are the stories you don't typically hear of how these leaders are working to build brands and businesses that have the potential to not only improve the Caribbean world but also help the Caribbean world make an impact on the global business stage. Their stories will move you, inspire you, push you to take action, or maybe help spark your next great idea. I'm your host, Chike Farrell, and in today's show we meet Ria Ramutar. An entrepreneur who jumped from a career in the environmental field to go full force into the world of entrepreneurship in the food and restaurant business, one of the most notoriously challenging and competitive sectors out there. You learn how since her restaurant's opening in 2017, she's focused on the brand principles of authenticity, uniqueness, and making customers feel like family to become ranked as one of the top restaurants in Trinidad and Tobago's capital city of Port of Spain, building up to a five-star rating on TripAdvisor. Today's episode is brought to you by Republic Bank Limited, who are committed to helping Caribbean small and medium-sized enterprises succeed on their path to business success. Check out Republic Bank SME Toolkit at republicsmetoolkit.com for founder stories, helpful content, and much more. I grew up on a large plot of land surrounded by my relatives. Uh, you know, my grandfather had a farm and estate, so we had like cocoa and coffee, sugarcane, a bunch of different types of citrus, and um, we all lived relatively close together. So this is my grandfather on my father's side. I'm talking about. Right. So they were all there, and I spent a lot of time running through the bush, you know, picking my own oranges. Um, I was surrounded by a lot of great raw materials for food, um, just on the farm. You know, I didn't know anything about going to Massey stores, for example, and buying citrus and make and you know buying juice and stuff. Everything was like homemade. Um, we could run wild and free in the country, as as some people say. <laughs> right. And I just I love that. Um, and my mom's side of the family lived like five minutes away, so my cousins were right there, and it was just a very joyous um, childhood. So you had okay, so that's interesting. So you had sort of early exposure to you know, agriculture and fresh foods and that. So how did, how did you get into cooking? Like, was it, you know, part of the, uh, you know, kind of big family tradition? Absolutely. And, and on both sides of the family as well. Huh? So um, my grandmother is one of my main inspirations. Um, my, my mom's mom. And she was, I'd say, the village caterer. She catered for everybody's birthday party, um, church fundraisers and stuff like that. And I was exposed to that like as a child growing up. Um, and I actually got to help a little bit, you know, clean garlic, ginger, hand granny this, hand my aunt that, and just be around that. So that was pretty impressive to me. And then on my dad's side of the family, my ma, who's my great aunt, she would just do amazing things on a fireside. Oh, wow. So, I, yeah, I was surrounded by all of that. So Ma would have, like, chickens and ducks and whatnot. She would grow corn and all these um, these crops. 
and she would cook them all on a fireside. Now she had a, a regular stove, but the fireside was the choice. And just what she could do with that, that was just always impressive to me. So did each one of these folks kind of help teach you to cook or did you kind of pick up bits and pieces here on your own? How did, how did that kind of come about? Did anybody say, okay, yeah. you know what, Rhea, I'm going to come, let me show you, let me, let me teach you this particular thing with these secret ingredients. Or did you, you know, make your way on your own a, a little bit as well? A bit of both, actually. You know, as a child, you're running around, you're a bit of a nuisance in general. So they just give you something here, cut, cut up this. Right. Here, do that. And just based on seeing them, I just thought they were damn impressive. So um, I would ask and I would be involved and I would see, learn from them and try my own thing as well. So a lot of the, I guess a lot of my foundation was taught by these extremely amazing female cooks. Um, and then in my family, if you didn't know how to cook, that was really frowned upon as well. Right. You know, you'd be laughed at. <laughs> so even the boys, my uncles and they are great cooks. and you know, so that is a lot of family foundation cooking. God, and then what I didn't learn from my family, um, I, I taught myself. I went online, I looked up stuff, I tried, I experimented. And, um, I, you know, in my family, I was exposed to Chinese food. I was exposed to some um, Latin-inspired food. And on my dad's side, I was also exposed to a lot of Indian food. So I got a real good foundation. And what I didn't catch there, I taught myself. Got you. So then, so, okay. So then you kind of, so you, so you grow up a bit, um, and you, you know, start, start moving into, so, so what did you study to, to end up into the environmental field? I studied environmental and natural resources management. Okay. And I also studied biology, some microbiology, and I ended up um, going down that environmental field. Now I specifically chose that I was, you know, based on how I was brought up, how I was, you know, grown up. So, for example, on the farm, if you go and you dig a yam, you have to plant the head back to right. make sure that there is something for somebody else. And sustainability was a huge thing. That's how I grew up. So it was it's kind of natural for me to veer down the, the environmental road. Oh, wow. So, okay. So then, okay. So where, where did you study? Where did you um, do those do those studies? I studied at Trinidad, in Trinidad, University of the West Indies, okay. and I did a bunch of online courses as well to kind of help me become a specialist in environmental management, emergency response. Got it. So then in your, so, okay, so then you started your environmental career. So what kind of work were you doing? You know, I mean, I know it was sort of over, over a 12 and a half year period. What, what were the different types of things you were doing? The beginning, just basic complaint investigation. So the most basic environmental complaints, are, let's say noise investigation, let's say somebody's garage um, is resulting in oil in a drain, you know, investigating that and trying to get persons to remediate those things to moving on to managing persons who investigated that and every job in between. So beyond complaint investigation, there was actual emergency response, which involved things like let's say doing, learning how to jump out of a helicopter in an emergency situation, um, learning how to actually clean up an oil spill, learning how to put out a fire and things like that. Okay. So I've done, I've done a lot. Um, everything from the dirty stuff straight up to the paperwork. Got you. Okay, great. So then, so all this time, were you still kind of cooking a lot and cooking up a storm and, and starting to, um, 
starting to hone that dream of, of doing something in food or was that not uh, initially a big focus for you? Well, I kind of never thought I had the, the skill set to jump into the, the, you know, to opening a restaurant. I thought, yeah, I'm a good home cook. I think I'm good. You know, the people who eat my food think I'm good. Um, sometimes I would help my aunt out who did catering and I was pretty inspired by her because she had a regular job and then she did catering on the side. So I thought, you know, maybe at some point I'll get into that, you know, so doing my regular job and I would practice things on the weekend and on evenings and, you know, my family were, um, sort of my lab rats, right? as you would say, tasting the good, tasting the bad, looking at the ugly, you know, giving me tips, giving me pointers. Um, some of my coworkers also benefited and suffered <laughs> through some of my experiments, right. <laughs> as it would be. So it was, it was always there, but I just, um, I didn't think that I had it to launch off into, um, opening a restaurant on my own. Hmm. But then, at some point, but at some point the idea started to, 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 to get in there at almost uh, inception, you had started small and then just started growing and, and, and then what happened after that? Well, I, um, I started to get older, <laughs> you know? as everybody does. And I thought to myself, well, why not, why not give it a try? Why not give it a go? And initially I thought hmm, I would do something on the side, you know, something small. Maybe I would do like a food cart. Maybe I would try some catering. And then I was realistic with myself and I said, you don't know how to do things halfway. And, you know, for something like this, something that's this, this big and this bigger risk, I, you know, you kind of needed to I kind of need to throw everything in. So I went all in. You always had, you know, these different ideas. Maybe I should do a, a, a cart or catering or, or what have you. So, so is it that, you know, your, your ultimate restaurant was the result of a business plan or, or, or how did you get to that, get to that point? So I would say some form of a business plan. Yes. Um, I was been working on that for maybe about 10 years. I had this little notebook and I would just put ideas down, recipes down, decor ideas down, locations, designs for a food cart, designs for my, you know, catering business on the side, etc. And I thought to myself, maybe if an opportunity arose, I'd fall back on that. And um, an opportunity did arise around the same time that I had decided um, to leave my job. and. I moved on from there. Got it. So what was missing that you saw in sort of the Trinidad, you know, kind of culinary space that, that was what you were trying to position um, your restaurant as? How, what, were you, what, what, what space were you trying to, to occupy that you thought either wasn't there or you could add something to? So falling back on the previous point of me being very detail-oriented and making plans, um, before, and I didn't have much time, but before I actually opened Lola's or finalized her menu, I did a deficiency sort of investigation. I looked at what was available, what was being offered to the public and what was missing. So I tried to identify gaps in the landscape and I designed Lola's and Lola's offerings based on what was missing. I didn't want to be redundant. I didn't want to do what everybody else did. And, um, I made my own space for myself 
based on that. Got you. So you know, I know that you, you know, you told me before we started that things kind of came together very quickly. So, so describe what, what happened in terms of getting your space and, and having to make a, what, you know, was almost like a, an, an immediate decision if you were going to jump in or not jump in. Okay. So I'll go back even further. About three years before I left my formal job, I got a promotion to a senior position. And I said to myself, you really like to be outside. Maybe paperwork is not the most ideal thing for you. So let's start working on something. And at the end of my three-year contract, I'm going to move on. I'm going to do something grand. Um, you know, I'm not sure if I believed it at the time, but I, you know, about six months before the end of that three-year period, it started to dawn upon me that, yeah, this is something I really um, wanted to do. And I, I started to look for opportunities. And I was looking, right. I was looking, nothing was coming up. That seemed, that seemed right. And then one came up about, let's say, about six weeks before the end of that um, three-year period. And I jumped on it okay. immediately. And I worked at the opportunity. So a space was... A restaurant was being sold and I right. started negotiations with the persons who were selling it and I was looking at what they were doing and I decided that, yeah, I, I, I can't do it, can't do it. And then they were kind enough to call me at some point and say, hey, we're moving out. You know, if you wanted, this space could be yours. And I said, please introduce me to your landlord or landlady. Let me see if I can, I can catch this. And this was just a couple of weeks before. My job, you know, I, I had finished and um, right. I, um, I started to move on from there. So I was sort of between closeout operations at my previous job and commencement operations for Lola's. So that was a hell of a hectic time for me. Logistically, yeah. I mean, it took a lot of energy. It took a lot of resources and Lola's came together in about a two month period. That's, that's, that's wild. So how did you decide on the name? Tell me a little bit about the name. I didn't, I never gave much thought to that, to the name of, of my restaurant or business. Cause of course that would change if it, it might have varied based on if it was a food cart or a catering operation or a restaurant. So I was cycling through ideas and nothing seemed right. I wanted to, I wanted it to be sort of personalized. I wanted people to get the, the feeling that, hey, this is this is somebody's own. This is not some big corporation. This is a, a personal thing. And Lola happens to be my mother's middle name, one of her middle names. And I named it after my mom. Right. Wow, yeah. that's awesome. So so right when you were kind of going through that, that time when you had to make a, a decision, I know usually... Um, in every, in every business person's life, there are some people who, um, who are either saying, no, that's not possible. Don't do it. And then there are some people who are saying, yes, go jump, you know, uh, take it on. So, so tell me about the people who were, who were helping to push you to, to take that leap. Well, I told my family, um, and just my aunts, uncles, and my parents, and my mother said, okay. No problem. You know, one of my aunts was mm -hmm. also like, great, you can do this. I've been telling you this for a really long time. Jump out. And the rest of my family was sort of like, did you think this through? Did you really think this through? Tell me what your plans are. 
are you certain that you want to jump off into something else don't you want to transition my father um you know he puts a lot of points to me he questioned me vigorously about my thought process about my um decision making process and i really needed that i needed somebody to question me because so often we have people in our lives who are yes people who say you're great you're doing great there's no risk go ahead charge in and i was really grateful for those cheerleaders in my life but i was equally as grateful for those people who got me to pause and think about it now they didn't get me to pause for long cuz i had to act quickly got it so that's yeah, yeah that's kind of intriguing so what were some of the what were some of the things that in that even though it was a short period of time that you know just by kind of getting put through your paces okay are you thinking about this are you thinking about that what were some of the the things that you thought through or decisions that you made in that sort of you know pre-stage that you you look back on you say wow you know that actually helped me you know make a choice that that turned out to be a good one um once I actually was in the business well i did a cost benefit analysis you know at the beginning and right. um that kind of set me right in terms of financial planning i also did a project timeline so i listed out all the projects that need to be done to get this restaurant going and i gave it a rough timeline i called all of my contractors who happened to be um just family friends and people who have done work with my family for a really long period of time all from the country and i got them to tell me well how long would this take how long would that take and i drafted out a very detailed um project plan uh timeline and i worked mm-hmm. with that and that was probably one of the best decisions that i could have made because that really helped me um to be able to meet my launch date at the end and it saved me right. a lot of stress so so that's really interesting because you you had to choose your name quickly you had to jump in and do decor and and that sort of thing and of course as a advertising agency corner i always have to talk about branding and marketing so so i'm really curious about the brand um maybe a, a good question to start with would be what are three words that you know you want people to to automatically associate with lolas three words let's see authentic that's a big one um unique and family let's say family I wanted people to be able to walk in and see that we're a small family operation. We really do care and what we provide to you is authentic food, authentic honest interaction and um I just wanted people to feel at home and feel comfortable in the setting that I provided. So I know Tatish, I want to kind of drill into each one. So I think one of the things that you told me um is that it's really important to to have fresh ingredients and you know kind of connect to, to agriculture so does that one of the ways that you try to make the authentic pillar to life or what are, what are what are some of the other things you do to try to give people that authentic feel you mentioned um food ingredients raw materials etc i try to buy directly from farmers and i try to buy the freshest produce i generally don't use a middleman or a buyer i go to the market myself and i choose the best of ingredients that i can find and i try to work with those so i work with farmers from central puerto spain and of course all my fresh seasoning comes from paramin i also have drawn from my family's um farm in the country i get all my citrus um right. from my fresh juices from the family farm my father and my uncle you know they they still maintain the land and um i think that that helps 
So on another thing, the photos of food that you see online, they're specifically created for customers. So those plates of food are actually customers' food. Those boxes of food are customers' food because I don't never wanted people to see something online and say, great, I'm going to get that. That looks amazing. Show up, have their food plates, and it's completely different. So that kind of lends to the authentic feel as well. Um, let's say some of the photos created online, though, they're just for photography's sake to advertise our food. And all those photos are photos of our sandwiches of the month, which is sort of an initiative we launched in 2019, where we take a photo of, we make a sandwich, we take a photo of, and then the next day we launch the sandwich. So those are literally the only photos of food that were not created for somebody to eat. That's great for me to know because there's a photo of a chocolate chip waffle that um, I have been eyeing on your Facebook page. So I'm very, I'm very glad to hear that because if it um, if it tastes like it looks uh, when I when I come in there to sample, I'm going to be very very happy. Um, you also talked about you know the family atmosphere and 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 creating that vibe. How do you? How do you try to create that experience for people, um, you know, as a service-based business that, that gives them that, that family vibe when they visit? Well, we have a lot of excellent, amazing customers and we have a lot of repeat customers as well. So my front of house staff, those guys are absolutely amazing. Um, they banter with the customers and a lot of times they actually remember what the customer's previous order was. And this is something that just sort of happened. Um, so for example, <laughs> somebody would walk in and they would be like, Oh, Fiona, last time you had the, um, pepper fries, but it was too hot for you. Do you want it mild this time? And that's just an example. And yes, Fiona is the name of an actual customer. Did you train, you know, you kind of go through an intensive training thing, or did you just kind of select people, um, who had certain traits because, you know, people and, and, and team is, is, is obviously one of the most important things for anybody who's going into business. How did you, how do you build such a great team? The selection process was sort of different for, um, kitchen staff versus the front of house staff, kitchen staff, you know, everybody who works with me, um, you know, they went through little tests. So they had to show me what they could make and it wasn't any kind of serious test. It was, Hey, let's cook something right. together. Let me see how we work together. So it was because it's always important that you are able to work well with somebody. And it's my mom, it's myself, and we have one excellent other person in the kitchen with us. Her name is Candice. And we're just one family. You know, so that selection process is different from, let's say, the front of house process, which is a very long conversation, really, with the person. Um, we have tended to go for people who are funny, who are witty, and who are lighthearted. Mm -hmm. You know, because I think I, I I thought back to what I like when I go to a restaurant, what I like from the waiter right. um, or the person who's serving me, who's helping me out. And I like that sort of interaction. So I tried to select people who I thought would be good at that. And it, it worked out really well, because if you look at our social media, our social media is pretty interactive. Um, we have a lot of banter with our customers and we have a lot of realistic conversations with people like we don't talk social media person to audience we kind of talk people to people got it and that's the same thing we do in-house as well so so i want to drill in on that aspect of scenario training because that's 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 really um you know pretty powerful and i think you know for any business leader who's out there you know you're always you know trying to find great talent so so you would do um 
I understand scenario training, even for the front of house people, when you're interviewing them, what, what kinds of things would you kind of have them do so you could get a sense of, you know, their wit and, and, and how they would interact with people? Well, I just um, have a conversation with them, you know, throw out a couple of jokes and see how they respond to that. Um, that. That's one. And one of the main things I do is I ask them how they deal with a difficult customer. So I'd be a difficult customer and like, you know, the most difficult customer. And I kind of want to see how they respond if they get angry, if they're hasty, or if they're if they're too sweet, if they come across as genuine. Yeah. Because people can tell that. Yeah, it's funny because yeah. you know, in the marketing world now, um, the agency world, yeah, we're, we're we're constantly trying to find ways to you know to get a sense of if somebody can hit the ground running, and you know, should you give them a little example of a you know, do they build a social media calendar, or do they do this, or do they do that, and yeah, that like giving somebody something scenario based is really like, you know, a powerful way to to do that. And I want to kind of come back to um, you know the the balancing act of you know working on your job, but kind of having this ambition because you know in today's world there's so many people who have a dream and they want to to go after that dream or they have a side hustle and they're trying to figure out how to how to make the leap and 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 how to jump in right so so as somebody who's done it um what are what are a couple of things that you would you would tell somebody uh, that you know now, looking back, that you you might not have known then, if they want to make that leap into entrepreneurship. Um, what, what are some of the things that you would tell them to to either do or to or to be wary of? I would um, say quite a few things. Really, um, one thing is make redundancy plans. You have to have redundancy. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. A lot of people say, "Oh, take the leap, take the risk," but you have to make sure your house is in order. You have to make sure that you're willing to fall flat on your face, be an utter failure and pick yourself back up and move on. If you don't have the resolve to be a failure and learn from that and move on, then don't bother. Go back to start, try to build yourself up and go again, right? Because it's, it's important to know that there's a real possibility that failure is going to happen on many levels. And if you're not willing to deal with failure, truly deal with it, then you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Um, and I have a background in contingency planning, so I was, I was pretty good at that. The other thing is listen to every bit of advice that people give you because generally people tend to give advice that they, that they truly believe, but not everything is applicable to you. Not everything will work for you. So listen to everybody's advice and you have to sift through all that advice and determine what is applicable for your situation, what is best for you. Um, also just don't automatically throw people's ideas out. You know, you keep it in your pocket, you put it in your little notebook and you will, you're always able to revisit that later on because not every bit of advice is applicable to you. Um, at the beginning, maybe sometimes later on, you'd be able to pull up, pull back one of those ideas and, you know, implement that, but just be open, be receptive and be brave. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so you chose a business to talk about being brave. You chose a business that, you know, is, um, uh, uh, I, I've, I've never been in the restaurant business, but it's, it's known as a notoriously, you know, tough business, long hours, lots of dedication required, lots of, lots of challenges. Um, and you just kind of jumped in. So, I mean, that's, that's the ultimate in bravery. Um, what have you learned as a, as a leader? Um, jumping into this space uh, in your experience over the past few years that you've that you've been in the restaurant business. 
what I've learned that is that maintaining a work-life balance is incredibly difficult in the restaurant industry. And your quality of life is going to seriously suffer if you cannot maintain um, a real nice balance between work mm. and your personal life. It really helps that I love what I do. So a lot of it isn't, I don't see it as, as work, you know. So cooking every day, I can cook thousands of meals a day if I had the opportunity to. And I'd be very happy doing that. But that's not all that it takes to run a restaurant. You have the other aspects that are not so pretty. You know, you have to deal with the back end of managing a business, etc., And that takes up a lot of time. And if you don't take some time for yourself to do something for yourself in your own private time, you're mm -hmm. going to really suffer. Um, and that's one of the things I don't think I planned for adequately going into this. I didn't quite realize exactly how much it would take out of me physically, emotionally, mentally, everything. Right. So operate, own, run a restaurant. Um, yeah. And I struggled with maintaining that balance for a long time. Right. So how have you, how have you found ways um, over time to, to, to give yourself, you know, an outlet outside of, outside of work? How do you, how do you find ways to balance it now? Well, I started back really um, cooking for my family and spending time wherever I could find it with my family and with my fiance. And the other thing is I started back um, experimenting with food while carving time out for myself to continue my food experimentation and cook things that maybe I'm not so good at cooking, teaching myself, learning and exploring and just basically cooking food that I want to eat as well. Right. And that kind of helps me with the business side as well, because maybe I can introduce something new to the restaurant every now and then. Yeah, that's powerful. And, and I want to kind of come back because you touched on one of my, you know, one of my favorite topics to talk about with people who are in their own business, which is, you know, learning from things that don't go right or failures and that sort of thing. And I mean, even for, for, for me and my own, um, you know, ad agency experience, we've had, you know, four distinct um, pivots that we could look back on and there've been lots of ups and lots of downs. And, you know, I always think it's super important because in the Caribbean, you could, you could argue that, um, you know, we are, you know, somewhat risk averse. It, it obviously gets a little bit better with each generation, but I think it's always important for people to hear that it's fine to fail and it's, 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 it's actually maybe even a, a good thing. So what's an example of something that, you know, in these past few years, you're like, you know, that did not go at all according to plan. Um, give me an example of something like that. When Lola started up, we deliberately did not do any advertising. We didn't preload the situation. I wanted my staff to sort of learn and work together, get accustomed to the flow. And, you know, then we would, we would get more efficient, effective. We get better as a team, you know, moving as time progressed. Um, because I thought, you know, sales would start up a bit slow. Things would be slow. People wouldn't really know about us. So we have time to, you know, make our little mistakes and move on. And as the customer base grew, so too would our efficiency and effectiveness. Um, on day one, we ran out of all prep right. before 12 noon because that was the response. I didn't anticipate that people would, um, you know, come in and that was frightening. It was scary. The kitchen was a mess. We were running around, you know, it was so bittersweet for us because right. wow, people will come in. And at the same time, my God, we have no more carrots. <laughs> what do we do? You know, what do we do? Um, 
So I would say day one was such a success and such a failure at the same time because we overprepped a lot of things, we underprepped a lot of things, we ran out, you know, and um, mm. it was it was just real hard. And sometimes we have days like that. You can't plan for everything. You can't anticipate everything. And um, I'm yeah. grateful for day one because we didn't quite fall flat on right. our faces, but we fell. You know, it's it's not nice to tell a customer. Um, we won't be able to provide you with that. You don't really want to say we didn't prep enough, but you know, you, you have to be true to the customer. You have to be honest because they can tell when you're lying. Say, sorry, we ran out of this. We didn't anticipate the response that we'd get from the public on day one. And, um, and we really hope that you come back. Or if you want to wait, you can wait 20 minutes and, and you know, then we can start your meal. So it's an example of, of um, failure and, and trying to deal with it. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great one. So your your marketing of yourself, as you said, you know, you, you didn't go big early on, but now I see that, you know, you are very active on social media and as you said, very conversational, etc. So 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 what was be what was behind that? Because you had to kind of find your voice and find a way to communicate with people. Um how did you did you kind of start off like that from the beginning or or have you been able to sort of find and fine-tune different things on your your digital and your social media and your communication? Yeah, I would say that it's evolved. We started off really slow because we were very, I was very conscious. I can't say we, I was very conscious of the fact that this is a new industry for me. This is a new business for me. I wanted to start off slow. I didn't want to attract too many people. I wanted to make sure I was solid, real solid before, you know, ramping things up in that regard. And just it's evolved based on the customer base that we um, developed based on our return customers, based on the environment we developed. And I think one drives the other and vice versa. So our physical presence kind of fuels our social media presence. Our social media presence fuels to an extent what we do, to a large extent what we do in the front. And that really helps. And um, we just kind of put things out there and we feel how the customers, see how they respond. We put out something small, they respond in a big way, and then we can move in that direction. We try to change up the conversation based on current events. And I have to say, one of the longest running jokes around Lola's is our anonymous Facebook admin. So um, I don't do Lola's social media. We have an anonymous Facebook admin and I'm so grateful for that. And that person is able to just work with the customers, just engage with them online. He's able to stay current and um, our social media evolves based on a lot of the times his expertise. When we come back, Rhea talks about how she gives her team equal voice in the ideas and innovations that lead to rapid experimentation and figuring out what they can do to be better the next time. Before we continue, we want to take a quick moment to say thanks to our sponsor, Republic Bank Limited, for making this episode possible. Now, as a busy entrepreneur, juggling so many tasks to ensure your business runs smoothly can be really tiring and time-consuming. Republic Bank's digital business solutions make it easy to stay on top of your tasks and still find time for the things that are important. Their digital business solutions include products like online banking, Republic ACH, the payment management platform, ePay, and other e-commerce solutions designed to facilitate online payments. They've also got great business credit cards if you want to be able to do and execute on things faster. Make the right choice for yourself and your business with Republic Bank's digital solutions. 
we're recording this on on March 29th, 2020, which means that we're doing it right in the middle of um, the huge coronavirus pandemic, which is which is impacting um, you know people, businesses, etc. So so it would probably be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about that, um, you know, because I think uh, everyone is trying to adapt um, and trying to adapt, you know personally, um, family-wise, and then certainly from a business standpoint. Um, what are you doing differently now uh, as a result? Uh, what, you know, what have you kind of been forced to, to find ways to innovate around? Yeah, I've been following this pandemic as it spread, you know, and as it developed. And quite a few weeks before we even had our first case, I sat down and I developed I would say a few strategies or contingency plans for it or, or measures that I wanted to implement. Uh, or I thought maybe if things got bad, this is what, this is what we could do mm -hmm. to try to stay competitive and stay afloat. So Lola's has not done delivery before outside of catering, private events, etc., And that was one of the things that we had to pull the trigger on. Um, we started offering delivery because at this time, a lot of people are self-isolating. A lot of people are, you know, doing the correct thing, working from home as far as reasonably practical. And, you know, we try to reach <clears throat> those of our customers who are at home as well and deliver the same quality of product as one thing. Another thing is um, just by offering different products. So we have like family meals now because we're cognizant that people are at home now with their kids, you know, so we offer little family meals and deals that are um, priced a little bit differently so that people can, you know, Right. afford to buy them more frequently um so those sorts of things we also have different products available and by products i mean for example people can order 10 waffles and we can either freeze them for you or provide them fresh you pick them up you put them in your freezer and you use them okay. as you see fit or as needed at home um we've ramped up our bread production so people are ordering like three four loaves of bread etc based on the size of their families um, and things like that. We also been providing on some of our sauces. Yeah. Um, also all customers that we offer curbside pickup, any customers that come in, they can have sanitizer. Okay. We provide them with gloves, etc. Um, posted all of these changes on our various social media platforms. We've also done a lot of word of mouth. So when a customer does come in or does call, we let them know what the different options are. Um, and try to get them familiar with that. It's pretty much the the exact playbook that anyone in the food service business really needs to take. Even here in Seattle, for example, like one of the first things that one of the most famous high-end dining restaurants did was switch to, you know, burgers and, you know, to go on curbside and that sort of thing. I always thought that was like super innovative. So it's great to hear you sort of saying the same thing that you, you looked at process, you looked at, you know, offering, you looked at different things to kind of find a way to, to adapt really quickly, which is, which is super powerful. Um, had you been able to, you know, even before this, um, you know, change aspects of your operations and kind of find other ways to innovate from the way you started doing something to, to the way you're doing after to find new ways to be, you know, to be more efficient, to be faster, to be better? Of course. Policies and procedures change all the time and they're, they've been informed by statistics. So, for example, we look at sales on a daily basis. I do that. And we look at what's been selling. We look at trends and, you know, what's not been selling you know, we kind of, I look at trends and I try to make a decision as to whether it's beneficial to continue that menu item or to change it. For example, do we need to promote right. this more or to promote something less? 
you know, if there's already a fan favorite, maybe we don't need to promote the fan favorite. Maybe we can post a photo of something else, right? So that's just the front end. On the back end of things, um, we look at our procedures all the time, how we prep, how we, you know, how we organize our kitchen physically and things like that. And where wherever inefficiencies are detected, we try to adapt and make changes to change that. Another thing is in my restaurant at Lola's, everyone has an equal say in terms yeah. of, you know, producing ideas. So if someone has an idea for something or if someone has an idea to change something, that idea is heard. And we all discuss it in an open forum. And, you know, if everyone thinks that the idea is great, we give it a go. Try. If it works out, fantastic. If it doesn't yeah. work out, great. Um, we learn from that. My staff is really super important to me. And I, I love the team that I have. And through this COVID-19 um, situation, it's been really scary for all of us. Mm -hmm. I don't want my staff to be traveling. Not all of them have cars. I don't want them to be moving back and forth, exposing themselves because we're not immune to the situation. So we have to take necessary safeguards as well. I now pick yeah. up and drop home some of my staff just to prevent them from having to go out there. My team is probably the most important thing to me. So, you know, Ria, it's, it's interesting because, you know, anybody who owns a business or leads a business, you know, we're all in this adaptation mode to COVID-19. Um, but I still want to kind of come out of that a little bit and, and, and just, you know, just stretch the imagination and, and, and think forward, right? So, you know, if it were a couple of months ago and even a couple of months from now, what, what would you say are some of the things that you hope to achieve for your business going forward? Let's look out, you know, two, three, five years. What, where, where would you like your business to go? Okay, in two, three, five years, as long as it exists, I want Lola's to be providing the same quality of service, the same quality of food, even better. I want to see us improve from where we are in every single aspect and not fall below mm -hmm. the level of, of um service and standard that we've we've become accustomed to and our customers have become accustomed to in years to come diversification is key so i see us diversifying quite a bit i wanted to talk a little bit about your inspirations right so you talked about some of the you know amazing influences you've had from family and others that that kind of helped you get here um you know who do you look at um you know either other Caribbean companies, global companies, or, or, or leaders? Who are some of the people that, that inspire you? Well, I've always been inspired by people who have a story to tell and, you know, sad stories. So I've, I'm always inspired by people who started off with nothing and they ended up somewhere. So it's not necessary just within the culinary in industry, right. um, just in business in general, right? But if we're talking about culinary, um, sure. I'm going to, I'm choosing to use some local examples, mm -hmm. right? That. Let's, let's look at Bertie's pepper sauce and where they started off versus where they are, mm -hmm. right? Let's look at market movers, you know, what they started off as and the product that they offer now, it's, it's not just based to Trinidad, but, you know, internationally as well. Um, and there's one other person and he happens to be within my family. His name is Rishi. And he does this right. supper club, right? Um, 12 by Rishi. And he takes local ingredients, um, local recipes, and he puts a twist on them and, you know, makes them into fine dining creations. 
Let's also look at um, show mm -hmm. cafe and uh, pesh patisserie and what those chefs have been able to do and how differently they do things. And the fact that they a lot of the times embrace the local and they're able to convert that into something a, a bit more elevated. I really look at them and I look at where they've come. I draw inspiration from them. I look at the risks that some of them have taken and I look at the courage with which they move forward. And I try to apply some of that to my own operations. I'm inspired by that. And I, as a person, I tend to be inspired by the people around me. You know, because I always in, I'm interested in how people kind of shop and they saw and 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 continue to get their own skills up. So, so outside of the you know meal preparation and the cooking side, you'd have also had to build your capabilities, as you said, around marketing and around kind of leading a business and being a manager and and some of these other things. So, you know, how do you how do you keep yourself um, on top of your game? There, what do you what do you read? What do you look at? How do you how do you learn more there? I spend a lot of time on social media and, you know, given that I'm not able to travel as much and experience that much um, through travel. So I, I go online and I look at um, cuisines and techniques that I'm not so familiar mm. with. And I try to learn, learn through that, hone my recipes, experiment and try to right. apply what I learn through there, you know, to my everyday. Right. So that's just any culinary world. But um, there's one story that that kind of got me motivated. And the story was told to me by um, my fiance. You know, he said to me, go research Dassler Brothers, mm -hmm. you know, because he reads significantly more than I do. And I was like, mm -hmm. what, what are you talking about? So I went on and there are these two brothers, right? Adolf Dassler and Rudolf Dassler. And they started off very humble, you know, upbringing origins etc um one of them was uh, like a, a cobbler you know an inventor and they started off so small and they're the founders yeah. of adidas and people you know and they had doors shut in their faces repeatedly they've been ruined and they just kept coming on and now these are global brands so i'm not in the shoe business but i really do admire what what they've been able to achieve what they what they've done and um their stories. You know, I'm always curious about a, a parting thought um, for, for folks who are listening and they, they are either just getting started or they're in business, maybe in business for a long time or the, you know, the folks who are kind of coming behind. Um, from, from all that you've learned, what would be one closing thought that you'd leave with people? Do what you love and do it well, but do it logically. Yeah. and apply reason to what you're doing. Powerful. Ria, let me thank you again for, for taking time. Busy, busy times, wild times, crazy times in the middle of the world that we're in today. So so thank you for the time and for sharing, you know, your amazing story with, with us. I really appreciate it. That was Ria Ramatar, founder of Lola's Food Company, a delightful restaurant in Port of Spain, Trinidad, that makes principles of authenticity, uniqueness, and making customers feel like family come to life in order to make waves in the culinary industry. If you'd like to be the first to know when the next Uptick podcast drops, please subscribe via preferred platform. And don't forget, share with a friend. Until the next time, on behalf of Craven Ideas Synapse in Trinidad and Tobago, this is Chike Farrell. And remember, keep on ticking up.